This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. You're listening to the Fish Untamed podcast, your home for fly fishing in the backcountry. This is episode 47 with Preston Smith on the Clean Water Act and ecological offsets. So we can hop right in if you're if you're ready to go. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Well, um, why don't we just start with that then? Uh, if you want to just kind of tell me how you got uh, introduced to the outdoors, uh, where did you develop your passion for for fishing and hunting? Sure. No. So not like, not unlike many people, I was introduced by my family. So spent a lot of time following my dad around, uh, fishing, hunting, you know, started with small game and birds and then moved up to waterfowl and, you know, can vividly remember my dad taking me duck hunting and just freezing me to death in cold water, not understanding what we were doing as a child. Um, but then really he had a passion for as much as anything as fishing. And so we spent a lot of time fishing and growing, growing up in East Texas, it was mostly lakes for perch and crappie and bass. But then, um, really when I got into college, I did a summer school program through Southern Methodist university out in Taos, New Mexico. And I was kind of reintroduced to fly fishing and cold water fisheries and kind of you know, learned my way around the fly rod and reel that summer and then actually ended up kind of car camping and backpacking my way across New Mexico, one river to the next, fishing and fishing and fishing. And then since then, I've been hooked. And so now it's just something that I'm always looking for an excuse to go do, whether it's uh, in the mountains or saltwater uh, and even taking, you know, my fly rod out and, and here in East Texas and trying to chase bass in the springtime. Did you, uh, I know you said you picked fly fishing back up a little bit around that time. Did you, uh, did you learn to fly fish from your dad or was he, was that mostly gear? No, he was a big fisherman. And honestly, you know, the, the matriarch of our family, my grandmother is an avid fly fisher woman. 
And so she, she, she is a huge inspiration. I mean, she's very much the same way. Even now in her nineties, she will pick up a fly rod and have a little perch bass popper and, you know, try to hook a brim here and there. Now we'll have to help her get it off the line these days, but she and her husband for years went out West and would fish the big horn and the Yellowstone. And so, um, you know, I like to think that's kind of in my blood. And so it's been, it's been fun kind of continuing that family passion. Oh, that's awesome. You have, you have to tell me what you were fishing for around Taos because um, that that area of the country is somewhere I'd like to hit. I know I'd like to um, catch some of those. For, for, for me, sounds like more exotic species like Apache trout and Gila trout. Uh, did you get to chase any of those species while you were down there? I did not. I was doing a lot of the kind of smaller streams, mountain streams, just trying to find anything that would bite a woolly booger because I didn't know any better <laughs> at the time. Um, I did end up fishing the San Juan and, and some of those fisheries, which were – um, which were really a, an experience for someone that was still relatively new to fly fishing. But no, there, there's, you know, there's something magical about a river flowing out of the mountains and the life that it, you know, sustains. And so it's, it's really something that kind of hypnotized me then and still does today. And just, um, like you said, any excuse to go and, and try to find some of those species new or different or the same ones that we've been chasing for years is always fun. Well, yeah, I, I agree. It's, it seems like it would be repetitive to just catch what, you know, many people would deem the same fish over and over again, but uh, it's crazy how different uh, every experience, every fish is, but especially if you go around and catch them in different places, uh, it feels like a completely different fish, uh, different experience, just changing one or two factors. Oh, absolutely. And I'm, I'm guilty of this all the time. I get very hyper-focused on my fishing and sometimes forget to like, pick my head up and look around because right. <laughs> fishing can take you some amazing places and, and all of a sudden the landscapes are changing and different. But if you're only looking at that dry fly or your indicator, uh, you can get kind of hyper-focused into a very small world. But um, no, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing the places really fishing can take you. For sure. So how did you uh, pivot that passion into uh, what you're doing now with um, both your environmental offset company. And by the way, uh, I think I saw it's called Wildwood. Is that right? That's correct. Wildwood Environmental Credit Company. Uh, we started this, this iteration of the company back in 2014 and really kind of had our roots planted by uh, previous work we were doing uh, dating back all the way to 2008. So that's kind of really when the team was formed and we started working in this industry. But um, really before that, I, you know, I came out of college with a degree in entrepreneurial business and art. And I had no idea what I was gonna do with that, but I thought I wanted to do sports marketing and was very fortunate. I got to go to work for some great clients, the North Face, NCAA, Anheuser-Busch, and I traveled all over the country. Um, you know, Fast forward about 11 months, and I'd been in 110 cities. And I was kind of like, maybe this isn't what I wanna do all the time because I was on the road and I was missing opportunities to go spend time with family and, and really kind of retreat into the, the wilderness. And about that time, uh, really it was 2008, we were starting a kind of an ecological offset company um, geared at these mitigation markets and they needed someone to come in and do sales and marketing and help with business development. And so I started really, that's when I got to kind of pivot and align my personal passions and hobbies with a professional career and and have been very fortunate to continue to do that and and, do, and that's what I'm still doing today. That's interesting you mentioned that because 
Uh, I feel like I, t- I talk to a lot of people who are either biologists or, or something, you know, biologist adjacent. And uh, I think you're the first person I've talked to that maybe went to school for just straight up art. Uh, not something I, I hear a lot, especially pivoting into what seems like a more kind of scientific role. I'm not sure what exactly you're doing at uh, Wildwood. I'm sure we'll get into that. But uh, that, that's an interesting transition from uh, an art degree to what you're doing now. Oh yeah, no, there's no doubt, and uh, I'm I'm very very much surrounded by a lot of ologists and foresters, and you know, and, and so there's a lot of technical expertise that I have to lean on our team for. Um, but it's you know, it's it's a fun way for me to kind of be a consummate student, continue to learn and pick up new things. Uh, you know, really, almost every day I come to work, which is which is a lot of fun. Now, what is your role at Wildwood? So I'm one of the managing partners and, and founders. And so my area of expertise is really a lot more around the finance and economics, um, due diligence, you know, will assist in permitting efforts, you know, new projects, new markets. Um, I do actually manage a lot of our endangered species projects and the permitting efforts for that. Um, but really we have a team here that's just very talented in not only permitting and developing these projects, but managing the development of them and the restoration and then even the long-term stewardship. So I just kind of play a overarching role in helping guide some of those things and even all the way down to investor relations and and kind of the marketing of of the company. Now, this might be where I uh, kind of weighed in over my head because I I did do a little uh, research on your website before we talked just so I didn't sound horribly ignorant, but um, I also like to not go too deep because I want to have, you know, true questions that I'm wondering and not just setting you up with softballs. Um, so I, I don't really know a whole lot about environmental offsets apart from, uh, you know, you hear about like carbon credits. If you fly, you can offset that. And I'm sure this is a similar uh, type deal, but I'm sure it's a, also a little bit different in how it's pulled off. So do you want to give me kind of uh, your elevator pitch for what uh, ecological offsets are and how they work and who might benefit from them? Sure. So, you know, what I'll probably do is zoom out a little bit. And I know this is one of the questions you and I discussed previously, previously is kind of what is the Clean Water Act? Um, but really, the there's two federal programs that kind of guide what we do as far as environmental credits. One is the Clean Water Act and the other is the Endangered Species Act. Both were, you know, kind of initially ratified in the 70s and refined over time through different administrations. But uh, specifically with the Clean Water Act, uh, George Sr. kind of put into effect a no net loss of the functions and values of these stream and wetland ecosystems. And so by that, any development that results in the you know, the adverse effect or degradation of wetlands and streams is required to offset that loss before they're given a permit to go develop whatever that project is. That could be a highway, it could be oil and gas, it could be uh, any number of things, you know, commercial development. And so um, what we do at Wildwood is we go out and find degraded ecosystems in need of restoration that are home to a variety of wetland types and stream types. And we put together a plan to restore those ecosystems. And in that process, we develop these environmental credits, these offsets. And then we can go provide those to responsible developers who have a need for offsets and they can purchase credits. And it actually helps expedite their permitting process, add some efficiencies, even transfers that environmental liability of that loss to our projects where we're going to go, 
ensure uh, success of these sites. And so it's, you know, really our, our focus is kind of providing a service to industry where we let our clients do what they're good at, you know, build commercial buildings, build highways, oil and gas infrastructure, whatever that may be. And then we do what we're good at, which is the ecological restoration. Okay. Uh, this brings up two questions for me. One is, um, are you, so say a client has a need, you know, they're building a subdivision and they, they need to offset that. Do they come to you and say, we're doing this. And then you then go out and, uh, kind of do a restoration project that matches that? Or are you doing these on the side separately and then building up credits that then you can sell out to people whenever they need them? So the the short answer is both, but okay. kind of to expand on the Clean Water Act, uh, in 2008, they created the new rule. And so basically a refinement of that Clean Water Act. And what they did is they put a hierarchy in place for how they want to see permittees offset these adverse impacts. The top choice is mitigation banking. The second is permitting responsible mitigation. And so uh, we really perform both functions, but our focus has historically been on mitigation banks where we'll go look at an area that has uh, a need for mitigation. And we, you know, you know, demonstrated demand through you know, historical permit data. And we'll go out and select a site and try to match that site as far as size and scale to the market to then accommodate a variety of clients within that region. Now, it does happen on occasion where uh, there's not sufficient bank credits or an area that's not serviced by a bank, and we'll have a client come to us that says, hey, we need an offset for this particular project. And in that case, we'll create a specific restoration plan on a specific site for that impact. I see. Okay, that makes sense. And uh, the other question that I thought of was, if someone's, let's say someone's building again, like a subdivision or something, and, and they're turning land that was previously, um, I would assume like open open field, open grassland, or, or even uh, woods that are being cut down. Um, now, there's a specific area associated with that. How do you translate that into what the equivalent restoration project would be? Because obviously, it's not like you're going to be like, okay, well, they're building buildings here, so we're going to tear down buildings over here and turn it into uh, nature. Uh, that's not going to happen. So how do you... Um, kind of equate what what equals what when it comes to uh, restoring something in order to make it the equivalent of, of what they need to offset? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, really what you look at and how I've always tried to describe it is that if you went out and took every wetlands or stream or natural resource in the United States and scored it from zero being a parking lot to a 10 being the most pristine, untouched, ecosystem that you can imagine, everything falls somewhere between those those two sure. bookends. And so what happens is people that are doing responsible development, they'll work with environmental consultancies to quantify the score of that specific track of land or those acres. And so they'll, they'll determine how well it functions as a wetland or as a stream or as an endangered species habitat. And then that quantification will show, okay, it was maybe a three out of 10. And since it's going to be a parking lot, we've got to replace, you know, the three that did exist that now won't exist as a parking lot. And so that's really, it's, it, there's a lot of different, I say fairly complicated tools that go score forestry and wildlife habitats and the hydrology. Um, but kind of all summed up, it's, it's looking at kind of a, you know, plus and minus scale of the the functions and values and so that's you know and similarly when we're 
offsetting a place, you know, or, or say creating a mitigation bank for those offsets, we will go score that environment. And ideally we find something that's uh, reasonably high functioning, but it may be impaired from historic logging activities or overgrazing, any kind of things that, you know, may have created a detriment on the landscape. And we'll go look at it and score it in, in its, its current state of a, call it a five or a six, we'll develop a restoration plan that says, we're gonna go treat invasive species, we're gonna go fix this stream, we're gonna go plant trees, and it's gonna take it from that five or six to maybe a eight or nine, with the idea that even at the end of our site development work, that mother nature will kind of help keep it moving in the right direction. And then somewhere on down the line, it may be a more perfect scoring environment. And so that's then how we generate the credits that we sell. So we establish that baseline, come up with some functional lift and prescriptions to accomplish that. And then kind of by the number of acres on a particular site, we'll, we'll derive at some number of credits. Interesting. So I assume both area and the work being done are taken into account. Like if you were to turn a, a three into a nine, but it only in a, you know, a soccer field size area, that's going to uh, kind of be weighed differently than if maybe you only took something from a five to a six, but it was, you know, 100,000 acres. Like those those things might weigh out differently. That's exactly right. And, and honestly, it's been kind of our, you know, philosophical choice, I guess you could say, at Wildwood, where we've tried to work with bigger projects. We like restoring at scale. Um, We actually own one of the largest mitigation banks in the country. It's called Piney Woods Mitigation Bank. It's a 19,000 acre wetland and stream complex along the Natchez River. And so when we're doing restoration there and offsetting over kind of a wide geographic area, you're really seeing some significant gains, not only to the hydrology and the forestry, but the wildlife components. And and so it's really fun when you're working at that kind of size to, to really see uh, the, the good that can come from, you know, working over a, a landscape like that. Would you say a bank, is this just kind of like an area you're working in? So it kind of goes back to the, you know, what we do is we target these properties and permit them as a mitigation bank. And so, yes, and, and kind of the components of that for some context are that we are um, going to quantify that baseline score. We're going to come up with a site development plan of how we're going to restore that site. And then it goes under conservation easement for permanent protections so that even once we're done and after we we don't even own the land anymore, it's gone on down the road, it's still going to be permanently pre- protected in that um, kind of that restored state. Okay. And I think you you kind of already alluded to some of these things uh, in one of your previous answers, but uh, what, what kinds of things count toward restoration? I know you mentioned, uh, you know, maybe taking out some invasive species or planting trees. Uh, is it kind of a, a, a place-by-place basis and you just figure out what needs to be done? Or are there some common things that, you know, you kind of do to all these areas to improve the habitat? You know, I think there are probably some blanket answers of, of what you can do to restore, but it is very site specific. Every stream is different from the next. Every land, you know, every, you know, uh, ecosystem is gonna be a little bit different from the next. And so you have different types of invasive species in different areas. You have different types of desirable tree, you know, uh, mixes that you're looking for depending on where you are in Texas or the country. And so uh, it takes a, you know, real boots on the ground approach to not only quantify what's going on with the site, but what you need to do to restore it. And are you guys doing the restoration work directly or do you partner with somebody who's like actually doing the boots on the ground? 
we try to internalize as much of the process as we can. That way we know we're getting really quality restoration. Um, but we also work with really good partners on different aspects of it when it comes to, um, you know, reconstructing streams or, um, you know, large scale um, herbicide contracts for invasive species. So, um, we do a lot of it and we manage most all of it, but, um, th- but yeah, we do have some really good partners that we work with in implementation. That's pretty cool. Cause I, I think, um, looking at your website and just going over the, the offsets, the credits, I kind of assumed that most of it was done via a third party. So that's, that's pretty cool to hear that, um, you guys are doing a lot of it directly. You know, it's, it's fun for us. We've got a really good team that's passionate about what we do. And so it, it makes work fun. I mean, it's not always fun when it's August in Texas and it's 110 degrees and you've got to go sure. to one more plot and, and brave the you know heat stroke. But um, because we fundamentally believe we're leaving a legacy on this landscape, it makes it a little bit easier to go do those things, even when it's uh, maybe not the most hospitable weather. Yeah, I'm sure. And and did you say that um, basically anyone who's doing any development has to buy these? So there are, and this is where I get probably out of my league as far as what the uh, exceptions are, but there are some minimum standards that you, you know, if you're less than a certain amount of acreage or less than a certain amount of linear feet, um, you have, uh, you know, exclusions where you might not have to. But typically what you see with any major development is that they're meeting these minimum standards and then they'll be required to offset those impacts prior to getting their permits for construction. All right. That, I mean, that's good to hear. I, I don't really feel like I was aware of that. And there's a lot of subdivisions that pop up around me. Um, just being in the foothills of Colorado, it's ripe for building new houses. So it's kind of nice to hear that people who are building things at least are making some positive impact somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, and, and it's it's a, a probably very much like, you know, um, how we determine what to do on a site. It's on a case by case basis. And you have, uh, unfortunately, you have bad developers and then you have responsible developers, good developers. And so um, I think that's one of those things that, um, again, it just depends on the case and time and, and each specific uh, each specific site. But I like to believe is kind of an eternal optimist that yes, most people are doing the right thing. That's good to hear. I know you meant this might be a good transition into kind of what the Clean Water Act is. Um, but I know you mentioned that you work with both the Clean Water Act and the uh, Endangered Species Act. And I saw on your website too, that that kind of help that helps people comply with those. Um, can you give an overview of like what the compliance with, with those uh, acts is? So, I mean, and we've kind of touched on it, right? Like mitigation banking, you know, these these project act is like large scale restoration projects that are designed to provide offsets for unavoidable impacts, you know? So um, similar with the conservation banks, it's, it's a way to expedite permitting of specific oil and gas or wind farms or any of these things that have a, and we typically and historically have worked with American bearing beetle across Oklahoma, but so things across Eastern Oklahoma in the range of the ABB, that require these offsets, it becomes a more efficient, cost-effective way for them to go develop their projects while entrusting that long-term conservation and stewardship to us. Right. Okay. I guess I was just wondering, like, do they each have their own separate requirements or are they sort of hand-in-hand tied together? So there's a variety of different permits under both the Clean Water Act and the Endangered Species Act. 
Um, you know, you go into larger projects under the Clean Water Act that require, you know, like an individual permit, which are typically larger impacts. So maybe, you know, a port authority developing a new uh, export terminal or um, I'm trying to think of other good examples, but, um, you know, larger scale developments. Then you have nationwide permits, which apply to midstream projects or some of those housing development projects you mentioned. Uh, and then kind of on the endangered species side, you run into things called habitat conservation plans, where somebody that's developing a project is having to address how they're uh, either minimizing or avoiding um, endangered species habitat. And if they're not able to avoid what then they've you know, minimized into you know, uh, mitigation or conservation for that species. So um, there is a huge variety of permits that are out there that I am definitely not an expert on. I mean, uh, we focus really on kind of providing the client service side and the mitigation side. Uh, and there's, I say, much better organizations out there for helping permit those projects. And for us, it's kind of a, um, a slippery slope. We don't want to be the one that tells you you need to buy 100 credits and then, oh yeah, here were the 100 credits we can sell you. So right. we try to avoid that conflict of interest situation best we can. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I guess I wasn't sure how much of it you were privy to. Uh, it, it sounds easier and less stressful to just be on the providing side and not on the, uh, you know, ensuring everyone's compliant, just being like, we, we're here to provide the product that you need. And we're not here to d dictate what it is you or what it is you need or um, what's going to happen if you don't get it. That's exactly right. I mean, um, there's, I guess there's plenty of stress with what we do as well, but um, there's been a lot of review through um, different government agencies um, before they determine exactly what they need as far as mitigation. And so um, that's where it kind of gets back to, we're just helping ensure compliance and, and some efficiency in the, the latter stages of those permitting processes. Sure. Now, switching over a bit to the Clean Water Act itself, um, another thing I came across on your website was uh, mention of the Clean Water Act plus the Navigable Waters Protection Act. Uh, is that a separate thing or is that, uh, I know, I feel like the Clean Water Act has had uh, updates that have their own names and I, sometimes I am surprised that I'm still talking about the same thing. Are those two separate acts or are those related to each other? Yeah, so they are kind of all related, right? And I think this is what you see um you know, when, when you have uh, administrative changes, the kind of the pendulum swings back and forth on what's included and what's not included. And so the Navigable Waters Protection Act was the latest revision to the Clean Water Act under okay. the Trump administration. And so that's what was, I was thinking. It might be just like an iteration of it. Yeah. And that's what, you know, I, I, I'm fairly convinced that um, they like to change the name and the acronyms to keep us all on our toes. Um, but I'm sure there's good reason for the new names and new updates uh, when, when they come along. Well, that's a that's a perfect segue then into uh, kind of the history of the Clean Water Act and how it came about. What are some of the major changes that it's gone through, and where do, where does it stand today? And I mean, where do you think it's going? Ooh, that's a that's a, another good question. I, I'll have to pull out my crystal ball and see what it says about the future. But okay. <laughs> uh, or maybe just my magic eight ball. I'll shake it up and see what it says. But um, no, I mean, so the Clean Water Act's been around for a long time, right? It was originally, I guess it was originally permitted in 72 with revisions kind of along the way. And like I said, um, George Bush Sr. really kind of was instrumental in implementing a no net loss policy. And then we saw a revision to it in 2008 that kind of set the groundwork for mitigation banking as being the favor, favorable offset. 
Um, we saw a presidential memorandum, memorandum under Obama in 2015 calling for kind of additional considerations for the Clean Water Act. And then we saw what would be considered kind of a rollback of regulation under the Trump administration with this new navigable, navigable waters rule. So, um, you know, I guess every administration kind of gets their touch on on how they think it should be implemented and looked at. And so um, now we're kind of in a new administration, right? Biden administration, and they'll get to look at what's been done and how they'll respond to that. And, um, you know, I think it's probably safe to say that we're looking at maybe increased regulations around that. I, you know, I don't know what that timeline looks like in their priorities as far as administration. I think we're We'll have the navigable waters rule in its current state for the next couple of years, but then looking forward past that, I would be um, surprised if the current administration didn't put their own twist or flavor on it, and and we saw maybe a little bit more um, inclusion of some of these ephemeral waterways that um, really went away under the the new rule today. Okay, so that's kind of bringing things to mind for me because I feel like I was aware of the fact that things were rolled back during the Trump administration, but I didn't realize the name that was associated with it. So I must have been thinking about the Navigable Waters Protection Act, but didn't know that that's what I was aware of. Um, do you have kind of uh, an overview of what, what changed? Because you mentioned the ephemeral streams, and I remember that being one of the changes I heard that a lot of these ephemeral streams and a lot of headwater streams um, would, were losing protection. And there was a, an uproar because, you know, arguably those are the most important parts of any stream system or the, the source of them. So uh, do you happen to know some details about what was rolled back or and also, I guess, what was implemented during uh, the 2008 amendment? So the... We'll start with the 2008 amendment. Yeah, that makes more sense. <laughs> because that was really a, a, a pivotal point for the mitigation banking industry as a whole, because, um, you know, really it, it went on, it was, you know, I say stricter enforcement of the no net loss policy. And then it created this mitigation hierarchy, which for entrepreneurial bankers like myself, it, it put some preference and some teeth into the rule for these mitigation banks. And so kind of these larger scale restoration projects um, had a preference as being the, you know, the, you know, to say the best is I don't, I don't want to make that claim, but, you know, to be the preferred offset for, uh, to, you know, development. And so uh, that, that's really what kind of established some of the mitigation markets as we know them today. Now, the, that has evolved and it evolves differently across the country because, a stream where you are in Colorado is very different from a stream where I am in Texas, right? I mean, um, you would probably scoff at what I call a stream and I'm definitely not gonna go trout fish in the streams here, whereas I would in Colorado. Um, but the, the the biggest rollback that we saw under the Navigable Waters rule was what we kind of what we mentioned is the ephemeral streams. And so if you think about a, a stream or a river, um, it really is customarily divided into three components, perennial flowing all the time, intermittent flowing large portions of the time, and then ephemeral, which are associated with flows typically after a rain or flood event. Mm -hmm. um, and so that ephemeral definition is really was being challenged. And, and you make a good point, you know, where does that start and, and stop? And where does an intermittent stream start and stop? And I think there's a little bit of interpretation on that. And so it'll be an interesting challenge over the next couple of years to see how people interpret that 
in different parts of the country and, and then how they go on to enforce it. But uh, along with that, we also saw things like perched wetlands. So things that didn't have significant nexus to other major water bodies or uh, floodways. And um, they were kind of rolled off the protection list as well. So um, those were the kind of probably the highlights or maybe lowlights of the rollback, depending on your perspective uh, as to what's kind of lost protections under this new rule. Now, I don't know if you'll know the answer to this, but I assume the word navigable in that that amendment has to do with the fact that it's focused more on kind of the larger, uh, like you said, perennial streams. Um, is there a, an actual definition of navigable that's associated with this, or is that just a word that they're using to generally describe larger rivers? So I think that comes from the history of waters in the U.S., right? It was you know, what was navigable for commerce and trade. And so that was kind of an overarching theme, but no, I, well, I say no, I don't know specifically, but I think that was kind of a remnant from earlier days because a lot of the things that lost protections would never have been navigable right. in that historical sense anyway. All right. That's the impression I was getting from it because I know that navigable has been up in the air before in terms of what counts as navigable um, and like state by state, I think even today, there's a lot of rules that depend on whether a, a body of water was deemed navigable and different states had different de- different definitions for it. You know, like, can a boat go down it? Can a log go down it? Can it go down without touching the bottom? Um, all these intricacies that differ based on each area. So I was, I was thinking that maybe navigable here was a more of a representative word than an actual definition, but I, I wasn't, wanted to check just in case I was misunderstanding that. Yeah, no. And, and, you know, if I would if I was going to jump on my soapbox for a minute, I think that's a word that's so antiquated in the context of natural resources and ecology across the country now that we really need to evolve how we think about and look at these things. Because to your point, right, headwater streams, ephemeral streams, where do they start? Where does it become intermittent? What's important and what's not important to protect really don't have anything to do with the historic commerce and navigable waters that we think about in that context. It's It's really more clean water, clean air, you know, healthy ecosystems. And, and so it's probably a, a, something that, you know, would, would, would be worth a revision um, in maybe the, this administration if they're, if they're going to take on that challenge. Right. As though the, the only streams worth protecting are ones that you can take a cargo ship down, you know, yeah. like, uh, yeah, not that I want any water to be polluted, but I'd, if, if something's going to be polluted, I'd rather it be at the mouth of the Mississippi than way up here. And it's going to pollute everything from here to the mouth of the Mississippi. So, you know, again, I, I would maybe argue that the, the headwaters and the, the smaller streams are the more important part to, uh, really keep clean. Cause that, that'll keep everything behind it clean as well. Yeah, and, and there's plenty of arguments about that, right? Do you, you know, where's the most important part of it? Is it upper, you know, upper parts of the watershed or the lower parts? I mean, um, you know, I think what we all know is that it's integrated on some capacity somewhere. And so, you know, figuring out the right balance of that, you know, I say development and and restoration is is really what, you know, kind of where we fall in, right? And I'm, I'm not anti-development. I'm pro-development in a lot of cases, as long as it's responsible development. And we're, we're seeing the appropriate amounts of offset for that in the context of, you know, what we're losing. So, um, and again, obviously, that's kind of the, the world I've lived in. And, and we try to help facilitate that um, through these restoration projects that we do. You know, as much as I feel like in the past, I would have, I you know, my, my stance used to be more like, just don't touch it, you know, just stay out. And I think I've more and more kind of turned into what you just described there, where um, 
I think if we're going to make any progress, you you can't be anti-development because it's not going to happen. I mean, we can't just stop the world and, you know, no more houses are getting built. No more new areas are being developed. That's just not realistic. Uh, so I think the more practical approach at this point is to focus more on that, like you said, responsible development, not no development. And sure, there are areas that should definitely have no development, in my opinion, um, that there are places that should just be left as they are. But uh, I think for too long, people were focused on stop this instead of uh, fix it. So I like to hear that, you know, someone in the space who is working, uh, you know, with with these development companies and might actually have a voice or make a difference, it kind of feels the same way that uh, working with them to be better is a better approach than trying to stop them altogether. Sure. And and I'm not naive. I mean, there's critics of what we do, right? We're we're creating an avenue for for loss and for development. Um, you know, I don't really see it that way, but uh, I can respect that side of the argument. I mean, um, you know, we work within a regulatory construct and and one of my, you know, long time, maybe lifelong goals is that I think as we make restoration, mitigation and conservation more readily available across a wider avenue of resources, wetlands, you know, maybe not just wetlands and streams and endangered species habitat, but prairies and forests and, and light pollution, all these things. Um, and the more active participants in these markets, the easier it gets to participate. And so at some point we get enough restoration, mitigation, conservation going on across the country, it becomes more cost-effective for the average person to participate in these markets. And so, um, yeah, maybe I wanna um, build a house on a piece of property. I wanna change that one acre uh, prairie into a you know St. Augustine yard. Well, great, if it's, you know, $100,000 for me to make that offset, it's not practicable. But if I can go pay uh, $1,000 or $5,000 to some offset facility that helps restore prairie where I'm where we've lost it, well, yeah, maybe that's something that I could get on board with. And so, um, you know, I think one of the biggest issues we still see is, is non-compliance or, um, you know, like I said, there's these minimum thresholds that people don't meet or they permit to ensure they stay under that. Well, we're still seeing ecological loss at those levels. Um, and so again, I think it's kind of our job and our responsibility on the restoration side of this, you know, the ecological restoration specifically industry to help develop those markets and work within the you know regulatory constructs that have been, you know, built to encourage more compliance and encourage more restoration so that we're, going to trend that in the right direction. Well, I can I mean I can see the the broad idea of where the criticism comes from like oh you're you're not promoting it directly, but you're allowing development to happen or, or providing an avenue for it to happen, but at the same time, I don't I don't know any developers personally, but I can't imagine many of them are are sitting there thinking, "You know what? I would develop, but I just can't because I just feel bad about the land I'm developing on." So I'm just not going to do it. I mean, in my mind, development's going to happen. Uh, and because you exist, you know, some will offset. Um, obviously, you said there's an issue with, you know, some people not complying. But uh, like I said, I don't feel like people would just not do this if you weren't there. So I don't view it as an avenue to development. I view it as an avenue toward at least making some of it better than it was to begin with. And maybe I missed if you mentioned this, but when you were talking about the individual offsets, is that something you're hoping to work toward? Or is that something that already is, is out there and is an option for people? No, it's something I'm hoping the markets will evolve towards. You okay. know, I, 
it's that's a maybe a a bit of a far off dream, but I, you know I think it's you know a big goal and something that we should aspire to as far as an industry, because um, there's you know there's a lot of different ways and mechanisms in which that can occur. But um, no, I agree. I mean, I think that the the criticisms are what they are. Um, what I can say quantifiably is that if you go back and you look at how development was offset twenty years ago, thirty years ago you saw kind of a patchwork of small on-site or near-site restoration um, projects, no real permanent protections. And it may be in the simple as, hey, we're going to build this five acre development. We're going to put five acres in conservation next to it and then, you know, move over five acres. And then there's another development, another development. So you had these little islands of restoration that became disconnected, didn't support wildlife and, and, and really hydrology and, and much of anything else. Um, and so really when we're working on these larger scale mitigation projects, conservation projects where we've aggregated thousands of contiguous acres, we can really aggregate all those smaller impacts into a single site and create some, again, really significant ecological benefit. That's true. I hadn't thought of that when you mentioned that you work on, on bigger areas. I When you first said it, I was kind of thinking, you know, get one big area and then you can focus your time on, on that instead of jumping around from from place to place that may have completely different issues that you have to tackle. Um, but yeah, I mean, I feel like when it comes to habitats, the the sum is usually greater than, or the, the total is usually greater than the sum of the parts because you might have migrations um, through there or streams that are connected that transport fish from a place where they spawn to a place where they winter or something like that, where uh, having them all together is, is more valuable than having them separated, even if the separate parts are all uh, what they would be together, but not connected. Yeah. And, and then even from the sense of, you know, looking at loss of low quality um, ecosystems, right. You know, typically somebody's not building, you know, in the middle of most pristine area ever, they're building on the edge of town or they're kind of urban sprawl expanding. And those areas have been degraded to some extent already. And so we're, really we're replacing low quality impacts in a lot of cases with high quality ecosystems. And so um, there's really, a, there really is kind of a, a no net loss and even maybe to an arguable amount of gain that's, that's there with, with working at some of these larger scales. Now, moving a little bit to maybe something more po- positive, I get not that this hasn't been positive, but um, it's a lot of like degradation, but on the more, on the more positive side, uh, can you tell me a little bit more about wetlands and how they help? Because I'm I'm well aware that w- wetlands are some of the most important water-related habitats out there uh, for what they do for other waterways that connect to them. And you brought it up with the uh, the Navigable Waters Protection Act and how some wetlands are no longer being protected. Uh, but do you have, I, I assume with being a fisherman and having boots on the ground in these areas, uh, you have some knowledge on like how the wetlands affect all the areas around them and, and the, the role they, they serve? Well, let's, let's think about it in the context of, um, we'll start in Colorado, right? You've got high mountain streams that lose a lot of elevation. And so that water's moving at an extremely high velocity, right? Well, ignoring maybe some of the, the, the broader issues of water going all the way from Colorado to Texas, but as it gets to the Texas Gulf Coast, where we have very little topography, that water slowed down immensely. And so, and it's spreading out over a wider area, right? That's, you know, effectively what creates a, a wetland area. And that loss in velocity, and then, of course, the, the plant animal communities that exist in these wetland areas, 
they really create a filter for that water. So as that water's slowing down, we're filtering more sediment, you know, all kinds of pollutants, and the ecosystem is adapted to absorb those and process those far better and more readily than, um, you know, going back to the Colorado stream where it's just moving too quick to drop out of the water table and it's just moving down, downstream, downstream until it does find that place where it can slow down. So, you know, in a kind of a big, you know, really zoomed out picture, that's the, the value of wetlands is that they're creating a filter before a lot of these waters reach the oceans and then recharge in the water table and, and, you know, kind of through that whole water cycle. So, um, you know, a lot of what we work with in and around Texas, the Texas Gulf Coast, you know, that's, that's what we are looking at, um, uh, at least on the freshwater side. So forested and emergent wetlands. And then we even do some tidal restoration projects where you're looking at kind of those plant animal communities that are resilient to storm surge and, and, you know, the tidal influences and things of that nature that kind of create an additional buffer for, um, you know, for development along the coast. Well, Preston, before we uh, wrap things up, I just wanted to finish with asking you if you've been getting out on the water at all. I know you've uh, had, you had that storm roll through recently, um, which I heard affected some of the fish down there along the coast, but I'm not sure to what extent, but I'm sure that there's also some uh, areas that may may not have been hit as hard. Have you, have you had any good fishing this winter yet? So it's, it's just on the cusp of getting to be really good spring fishing. And I got to take my three and a half year old out on Saturday and set him up with a little, uh, you know, little Zepco rod and he caught a nice perch. And so that was a fun dad moment for me. And then I even snuck around to the side of the lake to catch a, you know, pretty good uh, largemouth bass, but I'm looking forward to getting out more this spring and then even uh, hopefully out West some um, to kind of keep chasing those illustrious trout. Yeah. What, what time of year usually gets pretty good for you guys there? I'm sure the summer gets pretty hot, but there's gotta be a sweet spot right in the middle there. Well, really early spring. So really now through April, um, as, you know, where we are, we were predominantly chasing bass. And so they start spawning, filling up with eggs, putting on a lot of weight, going on the beds and getting aggressive. And so it's a fun time to, to be on the water here in East Texas. That's awesome. Well, Preston, uh, do you have any emails, websites, anything that people can uh, reach out to you or, or check out if they're interested in uh, learning more about this? Yeah, they're, they're more than welcome to come to our website, wildwoodcredits.com. Um, my email is there, Preston at Wildwood Credits. You know, um, it's a complicated topic with um, pro- probably more gray area than clear, but you know, really that's a big part of my role is just providing education and helping answering questions for um, people that are interested in these markets and where they can participate. So uh, happy to continue to answer questions in that capacity if, if somebody wants to reach out. Awesome. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on and um, really appreciate you uh, having the patience to to wait out these couple of months and uh, glad, you, glad you made it through COVID and the Texas storm. Hopefully things are looking better now. <laughs> yeah, we're getting to spring and be fishing season. And so it, we're, we're all on the up and up here. Sounds good. Well, thanks again. And uh, I'll be talking to you soon. Yep. Thanks, Katie. You have a great day. All right, guys, thanks for listening. Um, Remember to head over to the website fishuntamed.com for all episodes, show notes, blog posts, everything else. Uh, If you've got a minute or two, leave a rating or review on iTunes. And if you're looking for me on social media, you can find me at fishuntamed on Instagram or under my name, Katie Burgert on Go Wild. 
And that's all for this week, but I'll be back here in two weeks and I'll see you guys then. Bye everybody. country rules were not created by man don't miss wild country wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m eastern presented by primos speak the language waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment Four in the morning, join me chef jean-paul bourgeois and the whole crew here at duck camp dinners every monday at 8 p.m eastern on waypoint tv birds up in the sky